Hi, everybody. It's Lonnie. Um, I'm popping in here right now to just give you guys a heads up that this episode of Big Strong Yes will have some frank discussion of domestic violence and sexual assault. If that is something that will upset you, this may be the time to decide whether or not you want to listen to this episode or maybe save it for another time when you're more ready to listen to it. Uh, but we just wanted to let you know ahead of the game. So enjoy the show. I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm Dr. Kelly Jones. And this is Big. Strong. Yes. Welcome to Big Strong Yes, the show where we share our journey of reading three books that are inspiring us to embrace courage, creativity, and the call to adventure. Rising Strong by Dr. Brene Brown, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, and Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. Today's reading is Year of Yes, Chapter 5, Yes to Speaking the Whole Truth. Next week's reading is Chapter 6, Yes to Surrendering the Mommy Wars, and Chapter 7, Yes to All Play and No Work. Go to chipperish.com and search Big Strong Yes Schedule to find all the information about what we're reading and when. All right, Kelly, so last week you had a yes. You had a homework that you had to do. How did that go for you? So I'm going to quote <laughs> exactly what you said last week. I kept a fear journal and there were things in it. There you go. That's fine. You don't have to share the specific things. Of course I do, because I wrote a reflection <laughs> this week, but we'll talk about that in a second. All right. Um, there is also a reason that I am podcasting with wine. Yes. Tonight. But <laughs> it was it was very interesting. So when you train in qualitative methodology and when you're becoming a researcher you learn a process called bracketing mm -hmm. and the idea is you journal your own personal experience with whatever topic you're studying in order to sort of bracket off your own emotion and your own experience from whatever it is that you're studying oh okay so that you can try to become as objective as possible right mm -hmm. And then you can start data analysis and look for emerging themes or, you know, look for patterns and, and that kind of stuff. And so I decided to try to apply a qualitative approach to my <laughs> fear journal. All right. Because um, there was no other way in hell I was getting through this. And <laughs> so what I, what I have learned is that at the end of the day, when it comes to fear, I think I have a disproportionate sense of responsibility oh yeah and I blame myself for everything like at the super power level yeah and most of my fear is internal and therefore a complete and total bitch to face <sighs> because it feels like a part of me mm -hmm. but writing it down made me more vocal about it mm -hmm. and I found myself saying things more to friends out loud wow. um, than I normally do like, I would even, you know, say things just in ways that normally I wouldn't as much. Mm -hmm. um, and so hearing, like, your reaction and hearing the reaction from friends was a little startling because the delta between my idea of what I deserve mm -hmm. and the ideas of good friends who actually love me, who I respect, that delta is a lot bigger <laughs> than yeah. I realized. Like, I knew I had some issues. 
right? <laughs> I knew I had like maybe some negative self-image going on. Maybe a little. Maybe a little. <laughs> but <laughs> that, you know, when you look at a map mm-hmm. and it looks like the distance between countries is like an inch. Right. And then there's a the little key at the bottom and it's like, hey, that inch is actually 5,000 miles. Sure. <laughs> That's how I feel about this delta. Wow. Um, so it's actually a whole lot bigger than I thought. How um, was that, though, sharing that, those fears, those things that you don't ordinarily share? You wrote them down and you started to share them with people where ordinarily you wouldn't have. So what was that experience for you? Did that affect the amount of fear that you felt afterward? I, no, it didn't make me more fearful. Um, Did it make I you feel... less fearful? maybe (laughs) it it made me more vulnerable um it made me like I cried more I feel I'm struggling I feel more stupid because I'm sharing more vulnerability of things that make me feel stupid um but there's something powerful in that too Mm -hmm. you know because the people that love you love you you know, yeah. even when you're even when you're being vulnerable and stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think that there's and it, it kind of goes with the theme of the whole show tonight and why we're talking about the things that we're talking about, because mm-hmm. shame cannot survive the power of light. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. as someone who tends to, like, take her shame and wrap it up in a box and then put it in another box <laughs> and then put it in another one and then lock it in a casket and then dump it in a crate and then wrap chains around it and then lock it in the bottom of the ocean like (laughs) this is (laughs) and and do that alone um it's a new and and different sort of process and I'm also struggling with the discomfort of talking about myself a lot more Mm -hmm. which is incredibly uncomfortable um I always feel like I'm overdoing that like it's asking for too much like it's about you too much yes no I hear you honey (laughs) yeah same way yeah and it it just makes me incredibly vulnerable and um yeah okay so let me ask you a question though because because this is something that you know you are really really fresh to doing I have dragged you kicking and screaming into this arena here right um you poor poor thing I'm, I guess part of this is that like it, it alleviates my guilt if I know that there's a benefit to it for you. I feel like <laughs> I'm putting you through all of this pain and all of this discomfort. Is it is it benefiting you at all? Oh, God, yes. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. Um, and it, it's funny. I actually met someone from our Discord group today. Yes. One of our lovely, lovely, wonderful listeners who mm-hmm. was driving through Missouri and messaged me and asked if I wanted mm-hmm. to meet for coffee. Um, and she was lovely and meeting her was lovely and it was great. And she mentioned like she had gone back and listened to an earlier episode. Yeah. And she's like, you're so much more open now. And I just busted out laughing. <laughs> it's like, honey, you have no idea. <laughs> just sort of, you know, kind of assaulted her with an hour of very inappropriate conversation. That is the way I would normally be with friends. Right. And And I think it's... Part of this is, what do you call it? You, you, you usually call this integrating, mm-hmm. right? These two parts of yourself yeah. where I think in terms of being true to my personality on the show, 
mm-hmm. I do that. Yeah. Being true to a level of being open to the point where it would be the same level of intimacy that I do with a close friend. No, like yeah. I haven't gotten there. I'm getting closer and closer and closer to that point. Um, and that's just about becoming more and more comfortable with my own stories. And maybe that's about becoming more comfortable with myself mm-hmm. and just kind of owning those stories and owning my own sense of myself, I think is, yeah. is what that's about. As corny as that sounds. No. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's made me think about things that I haven't thought about, you know, writing and, and talking about the experience of, of being raised in the cult last time opened a lot of things up for me that yeah. I hadn't thought about in a long time. And like, I know I'm going to have to write about that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really going to have to do a lot of thinking about that. And, and so I do think it's helping. Um, and I think it's about integrating and I think it's about mm-hmm. owning stories. And, and I don't think you can do that without telling your stories. Yeah, no, I think that that's really true. It's just, it's so, it's so funny because I, I dragged you into this thing, you know? <laughs> into this space where you're talking publicly about things that, that some things that you di- hadn't talked to your good friends about, you know, yeah. um, up until that point. And, and I do see like this transformation in you, you know, um, but I also see how incredibly difficult it is because in order to reach that space, you have to process a lot of trauma that's been shut up in a box and then wrapped up with tape and then put mm-hmm. into a coffin and then thrown at the bottom of the ocean, you know, <laughs> um, that you're, you're unwrapping all of this stuff that you've shut off for so long. And, and, you know, uh, partially I'm like, I'm, I'm glad because I feel like I know what that openness does for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want that for you, but at the same time, having gone through my own split, you know, of these two parts of myself that I need to integrate. And especially in this past two weeks, uh, struggling with that quite a bit because I had kind of an explosive integration happen to me, which we will talk about a little bit later. Um, I know how difficult that is, how painful that is. Um, and I hate seeing you go through that pain. And I feel like I'm the one who dragged you into this place. Like, come with me into this arena where you're going to get the shit beat out of you on a regular basis. But no, trust me, it's going to be good. <laughs> No, but the difference is, is that you're there loving me through it. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that the power of having someone say, open up this story, let me put light on it, bring Mm -hmm. me your shame and let me give you empathy, right? That is the formula of fierce friendship. That is the formula of true kindness. And having that, I didn't have that before. You know, I didn't, I didn't have that. I mean, you know, my ex separated me from my friends. I raised this kid alone. Mm -hmm. I didn't develop deep friendships until I learned how to write a, you must be this tall list for friends. And I didn't Mm -hmm. do that until I was in my thirties. Yeah. Um, So I think that that part is new. And then I think there was always a part of me, maybe because of how I was raised Mm -hmm. in that, you know, you and maybe I don't know if it is a Southern thing. I don't know if it was part of the religious thing or if it was just part of my family. Mm-hmm. But secrets were made to be kept. Yeah. And you keep your mouth shut and, you know, you deal with your own shit. And so, like, there's always been this part of me that believes it was either wrong to talk about things mm-hmm. or that I did not deserve to talk about things. And yeah. it was kind of one or because it was my own fault in the first place. 
Like if something bad had happened to me, I had brought it on myself. So what good was it to, you know, mm-hmm. whine or complain or whatever? Um, so I, I think that there's a lot of healing just in, in sort of learning that I have the right to talk. Yeah. You know, and that someone loves me enough to listen. So it's, it's, it's a big lesson. And I'm really glad that you are there to guide me through this. Um, and, and if it helps anyone else, even a little, to start this process for themselves, then I will be very grateful. Yeah, no, I think that it, I think that it will. I think that it has. A lot of people have been telling us about their stories and the things that have happened to them and, and sharing that with us. And I think that it's, it's a really good and positive thing. It wasn't what I was expecting from BSY. <laughs> no. Oh my God. Um, no. I thought we were going to read books and talk about the books. Um, yeah. You know, uh-huh. although, although I knew to a certain extent that we were going to get into, into deeply vulnerable stuff, especially with Rising Strong. What is surprising me is, is the launching off point that year of yes is giving us to tell our stories. And of course that was my bright idea and we're carrying that through this week, <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, well, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad that it's it's good for you. I don't want to traumatize you or like bring you into a space that's going to be hurtful for you, but I do really like seeing you kind of come out of that shell and share these things and talk about these things. Um because what happened to you is not your fault and it's not your shame. You know? I think we're going to repeat that to each other a lot through this. I think so too. I have my wine. You've got yes, your wine. Yes, I have right? my wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is still really hard to hear that yeah. and accept it. I will say it back to you and I will mean it. I know. It's really hard to hear it when it's my turn in the hot seat. It is. It's really hard. And everybody listening should know that we say that to you too. That's right. You know, it's, you can be loved through this stuff. It's not your fault and it's not your shame. That's right. Absolutely. So you also had homework. Oh God, yes. Um, How did that go? I got to say the homework and the whole experience of these last couple of weeks has been so hard. Maybe even the hardest part of this whole thing, how hard it's all been. Um, But I think it was an essential moment of that integration, you know? Mm -hmm. And so my, my homework was to write down what denial feels like, right? Because I was talking about that, that person inside that was screaming. Right. And I was Mm -hmm. trying to think about what does that feel like, you know? And denial feels like fear, like real fear, cold ice down your back, fear. You know, it feels like a whisper and a scream at the same time. You know, those dreams you have where you're screaming and you're screaming and no one can hear you and no sound is coming out. Yeah. That's what my denial felt like. It feels like being split down the middle into two parts, one that knows the truth and the other one that hopes that's not the truth, you know, and they are in constant battle with each other. Um, and denial is, is horror, you know, it is horror because if you're denying something, you can't deny something that's false. (laughs) You're in denial if it's true. And I have been in denial for a long time about a lot of things Mm -hmm. and to acknowledge what that feels like to, to look at that voice that I have been shutting down and ignoring and shutting off for so long and acknowledge it and, and say, this is a real thing. Like that for me was this terrifying experience, you know? Um, but I think really essential to kind of inoculating myself against doing that again, because now 
I know consciously what it feels like. And, and I hope, because my biggest fear, like I said, is me, right? That I'm going to do this to myself again, that I'm going to tell myself these lies because the reality is just too horrifying for me to process, you know? Um, but knowing what it feels like, acknowledging what it feels like, writing down what it feels like, I hope will help me consciously process that if I ever start to do it again. I hope it will too. I hope so too. So, um, so that moves us into reflections. Yep. (laughs) What were your reflections (laughs) over the past two weeks? Oh boy. So (laughs) the thing is, yes. (laughs) When I started writing about fear. Yeah. Um, I thought I knew what I was dealing with and I, I don't know if you know this about me, (laughs) but (laughs) when I'm trying to oversimplify something or, you know, just like try to process something intellectually that is actually emotional, Mm -hmm. I try to wrap a framework around it. (laughs) Sure. Do you really? Yeah. Wow. I had right. no idea that I know. that was a thing that you did. It I've never a... heard you use the word framework before. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought, okay. So I'm reading over this this fear journal, which is basically mm-hmm. just a collection of shitty first drafts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to look for themes. Oh, okay. I see this pattern. Oh, here's a fucking framework for this. I'm just going to categorize the fear. Like, I'm completely separating how I actually feel (laughs) about this. I literally coded my fear journal. (laughs) I love it. No, I love that you did that. You made it into something that has meaning to you. And I think that's awesome. (laughs) I did all that to avoid thinking about how I was feeling. No, you did all that to process it into something that you could handle. Yeah. And then it kicked my ass. Frame that story, baby. Frame frame that that story. Okay. I applied research skills (laughs) to an emotional problem. Yes. (laughs) Yes, you did. There you go. But um, what I figured out is that I I think I have fear that is conscious and I have fear that is unconscious. Mm -hmm. Right? And so the conscious fear, they're constant. The ones that I'm aware of are always there. Mm -hmm. And so this is like... The fear of being powerless or helpless. So this is the fear of being at the mercy of someone else, which is why I hate going to the doctor. Right. Right. (laughs) Like when I have to have blood drawn, Mm -hmm. I am at the mercy of the person with the needle. Yeah. That is a position of helplessness Mm -hmm. to me. I don't like it. Like it is almost worth going to medical school to be able to draw my own blood. (laughs) Like, <laughs> I would almost... I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that. But you I, know. Yeah. But, like, I don't want to be in that yeah. position. I, mm-hmm. I hate that feeling. Um, and then I have the fear of being terribly wrong and making a mistake that hurts someone else. Yeah. So that's pretty much all of parenting. Oh, yeah. You know, that goes in there. And then I have, like, the fear of any behavior, action, or characteristic that triggers guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that I do that I'm aware of, right? The stuff I know I do yeah. or the stuff that I know is going to cause me to feel guilt or shame. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but they feel like fear because I don't fully trust myself and I fear the effects yeah. of being reckless or stupid. Yeah. You know, um, or it just feels like a character flaw or a broken part of myself. Mm-hmm. So like those are constant. Those are the things that are always there. Yeah. But then the unconscious fears come out in physical reactions and nightmares. Right. So this is where pain lives. This is where the killers and robbers and evil psychos are. Mm -hmm. Right. But I realized, and like I knew this about myself, but I didn't realize how bad it was until I started writing it down, that I have a terrible startle reflex. So like if you come up behind me and put your hand on my shoulder, I'm going to jump a mile. Oh, honey, yeah. And, like, I knew that, but I didn't realize how often it happened. Right. And it happens a lot. Wow. You know, and so, like, I will flinch around very deeply raised voices. You know, mm-hmm. I, I oh, cannot stand violence on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, this I can't handle the sight of blood. I can't watch, you know, like, people fighting too much when things get too violent. Like, I can't mm-hmm. watch it. Sure. Um mm-hmm. You know, and I don't like, I don't like roller coasters or things that are designed to feel scary. I can't watch a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I have a really bad reaction around certain people, yeah. you know, or just meeting certain people. Um, men that are, you know, like, if, if I know you're like a super strong martial arts person, I'm probably going to be afraid of you. Right. And mm-hmm. it's subconscious. Like, I don't want to be that way, but that's going to be a that's reaction. completely reasonable. You know. Yeah. But from that, like, I have a pretty good inner warning voice, Mm -hmm. you know, and that comes from fear, but it can be a good thing when I listen to it. Sure. But sometimes that inner warning system doesn't turn on. Mm -hmm. So in the fear journal, I also started just jotting down, like, good times that it does not turn on and bad times that it does not turn on mm-hmm. or that it turned on and I just willingly chose to ignore it <laughs> right so a couple months ago I was traveling for work and I went to Atlanta and I was in Midtown by myself mm-hmm. <laughs> you know at like one o'clock in the morning wow. outside of the hotel alone because I don't I was being stupid I know better like right things like that that I would but I felt comfortable mm-hmm. I should not have felt comfortable in that position yeah. so I was either willingly ignoring that voice or I was just not in tune with it so like mm-hmm. I have to wonder why does it turn off or why do I choose to ignore it you know mm-hmm. so it it's just this weird balance of like when do I listen to it when do I not and and having some confidence in myself in that yeah um but when I choose to ignore it it's not denial Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's an intentional ignoring, and I'm not exactly sure if I'm doing that in a positive way, what does it mean? If I'm doing it in a negative way, what does it mean? Right. So I'm still kind of processing all of that. Mm-hmm. But I thought at first this framework was pretty simple, right? <laughs> right? A framework <laughs> of two types of fear. Mm-hmm. That, But of course it's not. Mm-hmm. So the voice in my head that fears I'm not good enough and never will be, or that I'm inherently broken and always will be, is a lot louder and more persistent than I realized. Yeah. And so writing that down was startling. And that bitch needs to shut the fuck up. Yes, like she does. She <laughs> just really does. <laughs> because that's enough. 
Like, yeah. Jesus Christ, it's enough. Mm-hmm. But in an, in the overall analysis, like in actually mm-hmm. going through and analyzing the data, there were two words that kind of emerged that I did not expect. Um, and I had to have a friend help me with one of these because I did not want one of these words to be there, but it is. Mm-hmm. And so this is punishment and desire. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is I fear punishment, I think mostly because of how I was raised. Sure. But I also believe I deserve it Mm -hmm. and to some extent subject myself to it a lot. And that is a way of controlling and preventing fear, guilt, and shame. Mm -hmm. And that's messed up on a whole lot of levels. (laughs) (laughs) And the desire one, I think, might actually be a positive turn. Mm -hmm. But I fear that I desire too much. Like my passions are too strong. My dreams are too big. My voice is too loud. My spirit is too fierce. The love that I want is too much. Mm-hmm. And like you told me once, I'm a very powerful woman. And yeah. the reality of that, like the capacity of that, carries fear for me. Because there is nothing that breaks my heart more than lost magic. Mm-hmm. And that's true in storytelling. It's true in love. And it's true in life. And so like finding that power, owning it, accepting it within myself scares me Mm -hmm. but just saying the words out loud makes me feel ridiculous oh my god no that's amazing that is an amazing um realization to come to i i'm I'm listening to you and it is like giving me like goosebumps like it's it's so incredibly powerful that you're understanding that and you're acknowledging this because you are powerful (laughs) well but it's true you are an incredibly powerful woman and the things that you want are not too much. You know, I think you're afraid that it's too much. You know, I think maybe on some level you're afraid that you don't deserve the things that you want. Yeah. But you do, and you're amazing, and you can make those things happen. I think that power can be frightening, you know, and you have a lot of power, and I can see how that kind of power can frighten you. I mean, that's what all the superhero movies are about, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but... You know, you said it to me in a, in a different kind of context, and mm-hmm. it stuck. But, and I think it may be the fear of, A, wanting it. Yeah. B, feeling so incredibly ridiculous for believing that it might be true. Mm-hmm. And C, the potential for absolutely disappointment in myself if I don't live up to it. Oh, uh, You yeah. know? But then yeah. not believing that I deserve it. So it's it's a very weird fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would be lying if I didn't include it. And God damn it, I'm here to tell the truth. No, so. I think that's amazing. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's funny, though, because from my perspective, like, you know, there was a time also where I told you that you were playing small. Yes. You know, that you had so much more power to you than you gave yourself credit for. And I think you're still a little bit in that space. I think I can understand being afraid to acknowledge it because it is scary. Because once you acknowledge it, once you say, yes, I am powerful, then you have to use that power, right? The lost magic, right? right. You're, you know, you're letting that go. So that itself can be incredibly intimidating. And that may um, be what yeah. playing small is. No, it absolutely. I think that's what it is. I think that's what it is. Because if you don't know what you are, then you don't have the responsibility to be what you are. And when you take on that, you know, what is it? Uncle Ben says in Spider-Man, right? With great power (laughs) comes great responsibility, right? Right. So if you have that power, you also have the responsibility to use that power. 
And it can be very intimidating. Also, because if you work up to the extent of your power, eventually you're going to find the edge of it, you know, Mm -hmm. and that can also be scary. But I think it's amazing work that you've done. Well, I'm not sure what it means yet. Yeah, I know. That's kind of where I am. A lot of progress. (laughs) Well, I'm very glad that you think so. (laughs) So in my... um, my final conclusion, I said, yes. I, I figured I couldn't get out of it without going back to the emotional piece, mm-hmm. um, which was not fun. But yeah, fear feels like punishment and pain mm-hmm. um, or punishment and pain feel like fear. I'm not sure which of those yeah. statements is more true. But I am determined to feel afraid as little as possible mm-hmm. and to fight back with everything I've got. And so I'm going to keep rumbling with fear because it is in me and it's it's constant, you know, and I know that, Mm -hmm. but there's fire in me too. And it's strong and it's fierce and it's mine. And so I don't know exactly how to do that, but I'm not quitting. Wow. Well, I have to say, I think that you did some amazing work. Thank you. That is your words, your words (laughs) back to me. (laughs) It just took what? Three months. No, it takes time. It takes time to change the way that you think, to change the way that you see yourself, the way that you see your life, the way that you see the world. You know, that takes a long time, but you're you're doing it. And that's what's amazing. I'm trying. You so, did great. Thank you. It's your turn, honey. <laughs> oh, God. All right. And I'm not actually even going to joke because your reflections, like, I have been with you for a year on this Uh almost and I think this is the hardest two weeks that you've had yeah I think the reflections that you've had to do and the realizations that you've had to do I think this is the hardest part and what you have done is amazing (laughs) and I am more proud of you than I can say oh thank you and I know that this was incredibly difficult yeah, it's been um, it's been really hard. I mean, we started this year of yes, right? And I had this idea. We have to tell our own stories, right? Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that, like, ordinarily in my life, I have a pretty good grip on everything. You know, like uh, an ordinary time. Anybody who hasn't known me before Big Strong Yes or before this year of my life, like, I, you know, I always knew what I was doing and I was very conscious of it and and. I felt like I had control over it, you know, and now I feel wild. I feel like I'm just kind of out here trying to get through every day as best I can. And it's always messy, you know? Yeah. And so we started telling our stories and I listened to the last podcast of Big Strong Yes, like so many times, like one day I listened to it three times. Mm-hmm. And that was the first night in at least a year that I had a dream that wasn't about the trauma. It wasn't a nightmare. It was a silly, it was one of those silly dreams that you wake up and you're like, huh, that was weird. You know, but it was like, it was, it was not frightening. It was not horrifying. I wasn't crying. It was just a dream, you know? And I think that's because I'm talking and because I'm sharing this stuff. You know, when I share this stuff, I feel like I'm, I'm taking that weight off, you know? What bothers me about it is that I feel like by taking that weight off me, I'm putting it on other people because I'm sharing this ugliness and this grossness and this stuff that I am, even though I didn't do it, I feel a great deal of shame about, you know? So, I mean, that's hard for me, but I have to do it. Like, I can't hold this in. 
So right now, like everything is so hard. I am reclaiming so much space. You know, I've talked about it a lot, how he left. This is, of course, number two. He left this like smoking black crater in my life that I couldn't go near for a long time. And now I'm reclaiming things. And it's so hard in the moment when I reclaim it. But then once I do it, it feels so good. You know, I'm getting my life back. I'm, I'm pushing forward. But every step is so hard. If you've ever walked through sand or snow, you know, every step takes so much energy. And I have so little right now because I'm, I'm healing and I'm working and I'm doing all of these things. I have just enough to get through the day, you know? Yeah. But having that weight off of me a little bit helps. Um, and I don't know why I have to share this publicly in order to relieve that weight. I think that, you know, I've, I'm telling my therapist, I'm talking to my friends in private, and it's not enough. And, you know, part of that may be because everything else that happened was so public, and I feel the need to address it all publicly, and I haven't done that much, you know? Right. And while I don't talk about this, while I don't publicly say this is what he did, he hides in the shadow of my silence. The people in his life right now, they're not friends. They're not family. They're victims. And I don't like them. They're bad people. But they're still victims, you know? And I feel like I need to speak because whether or not those people would, if they knew everything, which, by the way, now they do and they don't care, um, that if they knew everything that they would throw them out or they would protect themselves or whatever, like that's not the point. The point is that I know that I spoke right. and I know that I did everything I could to protect these people who have been truly, truly awful to me. Um, but part of this talking in public thing is it's how I heal. And I don't know why, but it just is during my first divorce. I kept a blog um, and I talked about all the things I was going through and all the things I, were fe I was feeling and what I was thinking. And that of course is how number two found me and got to me. Cause I put all my vulnerability out there. Um, I put all my vulnerability out there and he used it to get to me, which is, which is what they do. Um, and then when he got me, I stopped blogging. I stopped talking publicly. The only stuff I said publicly was the good stuff, was the nice stuff, was the, oh my God, I'm so happy, I'm so in love, everything's great, right? Um, he actually took over. He started blogging for me. He podcasted for me. Um, he wanted that audience and that spotlight and that platform, and I handed it over to him. And that's when everything began. Mm -hmm. So now you would think after that whole experience that I would shy away from being public about it. But still, it's the only thing that seems to be working. Things have gotten a lot harder, but they've gotten harder in ways that are really important and in ways that they needed to be hard for me. So I don't know why. I don't know what it says about me that I need all of this to be out in public, but I don't really care. I got my divorce papers this week. It's done. Hallelujah. I don't need him to sign anything. He can't do anything to me, you know? I mean, aside from coming here, you know, trying to kill me or whatever, but I, probably no. he won't do that. No. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think usually what happens, it's it's a process of idolize where they come in and they make you feel like you're the most important thing in the world. Then they devalue you so that you need them, so that you feel dependent upon them. And then they discard and that's the, that's the series. That's what happens. And so once they discard, you are nothing but garbage that they left on the side of the road. And you so, will take whatever steps to address yeah. your feelings 
to need safety. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I'm, I'm doing what I can. Uh, and, you know, yes. so I mean, that's, that'll be fine. But you know, I know it is what it is. Um, but I still need to speak. So I'm going with this. I'm claiming my story. I'm claiming my space and I'm claiming the truth. And I have to find a way I've been living in this darkness for a really long time. I mean, the past year, absolutely. I've been conscious of it, but I've been living in darkness for, you know, seven years right? Including all the time that I was with him because that was darkness. And right now I'm going to just grasp at whatever light I can. And if that means speaking, then I'm going to speak and it'll be what it'll be. So I've been thinking about this. Yes. I've been thinking about your need to do this and your need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And you said, I don't know what it says about me. Yeah. And I think it says one of the most basic things that has been true about you since before I knew you. You are a writer. Yeah. This is what writers do. They tell stories. They tell the truth. Yeah. And they do it through story. Mm-hmm. Or they do it through a lot of different ways. But they tell human truth. And without mm-hmm. that, none of us would ever know that we're not alone. Right. None of us would ever know that our experiences are not unique to us. Mm-hmm. There would be no survivor stories to share. There would be no patterns to learn from. You know, there would be no sense of me too. Yeah. Um, without that, you know, I think that storytelling is the oldest and most trusted tool we have for teaching, for building culture, for sharing self. And that is why you're doing it. That is who you are. And that's who you were before you met him. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. That That is a, an essential part of your DNA. Yeah, you know? I guess so. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it that way because storytelling to me was always about telling stories about other people, like making making shit up, you know? <laughs> like, right. And I mean, you can do that. Like fiction is a, an avenue for truth. The reason why mm. we tell things in fictional spaces is so that we can focus the truth into this kind of, you know, um, very intense, concentrated space. But reality in, is messy, but yes. fiction is neat, you know? But in that way, fiction becomes mm-hmm. a framework yeah. for truth. Yeah. You know, yeah, and knowing you the way I do, I see you in your books. Yeah. I can see truth about you in all of your books. Yeah. But I think that the need to tell it clean comes from the need that you have to reclaim your space. Mm-hmm. You know, you shared a public platform with him that a lot of that was stolen from you. Mm-hmm. This is a way to reclaim that space. But that comes from your public sharing you know you shared Mm -hmm. stories you shared your thoughts you shared yourself and that was used against you in a way that is wrong in a way that was abusive and this is how you stand back up to that and I think that that is a powerful thing and I think that doing that within a year of this divorce (laughs) is like (laughs) probably the most badass thing I've ever seen but but you are listening to that need within yourself with great clarity and you're honoring it. You're not putting it in a box and wrapping tape and paper around it and putting it in a crate and dropping it, you know, down in the ocean with chains around it. You're <laughs> you're doing what you have to do to let the light in. And yeah. that is the best thing I think you could possibly do to heal. 
And anyone who would think that sharing this kind of story is fun or easy (laughs) has never done it. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is a um, this is a price for healing. This is not an easy thing. But I think that you're doing the work for the right reason. And I think that you're doing it with the right intention. And I don't think that you have to question that because you're honoring that very core part of yourself. Yeah. That you have not been detached from. And I think it's pretty amazing that you have not been detached from it. I don't know. To me, it just feels wild and desperate. It just feels like I'm, I'm doing whatever I can to not feel like this every day. And it's, it's starting to work. So I'm going with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have a little phrase around here called doing your best. Right. <laughs> I think it was your Renee favorite. <laughs> Pretty sure it was your favorite part of Rising Strong. I think it was my favorite part of Rising Strong. I think it was your favorite part Everybody's of Rising Strong. Everybody's just doing their best, man. Everybody. All right. So let's get into the reading. Woohoo! Now we're getting into the, believe it or not, guys, that was not the tough stuff. The tough stuff is actually oh, coming. Yeah. Um, all right. So go ahead and, and talk about your response to the reading, which, of course, is about authenticity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have Shonda Rhimes having to write a graduation speech. She is going to be the speaker at commencement, which is no small thing. Yeah. And so she writes a draft and deletes it mm-hmm. because it is not real and I read I read this and I thought okay this chapter is about authenticity and this is an area where I think of of all things if there's a space that I can claim more for myself it's going to be around authenticity this Mm -hmm. is what I want more of this is where I want to be stronger so her her kind of battle cry for authenticity was very strong for me. Mm-hmm. But there was a few things that she said that really stood out. Um, she said, what have, what am I afraid they will see if I'm really myself? Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah, <laughs> I get that. Um, and when she talked about writing the speech, you know, she said it sounded just fine, except I'm not actually saying anything. I'm not revealing mm-hmm. anything. I'm not sharing anything. There's nothing of me in there. Right, I speak athlete from, talk. Right, athlete mm-hmm. talk. I'm speaking from behind a curtain. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I know how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I know how to do that. Um, but when she rewrote it, she said, what I write next is less formal, less stuffy, less stylized. What I write is casual and a little raw and sometimes inappropriate, but it's honest and it sounds like me. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Well, that's me on Big Strong Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. And she said, if I'm going to say yes, I might as well say yes to being me. Mm-hmm. And I just tell the truth. And that was what really spoke to me from this chapter. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking about authenticity in some of the areas where maybe it's not such a matter of not telling the truth is not thinking about the truth yeah, or not letting the truth matter so much to myself or putting the truth in the crate. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so I think that this is going to run like this. I'm going to tell one story mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then we're going to swap over to you. Okay. And then I'm going to follow back. Okay. For the pattern of this. Sure. So the first one is a little lighter. Mm-hmm. And so um, a couple of days ago, a friend asked me if I could summarize for him my feelings on the graduation day from my PhD program. Mm-hmm. And I was a little floored because no one had ever asked me that before. Mm-hmm. Not exactly like that. Um, and he was getting at the actual emotion of the day, which you can imagine how easy of a question that was for me to answer. Right. <laughs> and so I thought about it for a while. And I, and, and I ended up having to kind of, you know, write an answer because I don't know what I think or feel until I write it down. And I thought, well... I was incredibly relieved because it was done Mm -hmm. and I was exhausted and I had been fighting this uphill thing for years and it was over. Right. Yeah. And I was so looking forward to watching television (laughs) that I did not know what to do with myself (laughs) because I had had a strict no television policy for years. Yeah. So I hadn't watched anything. So I had all of Buffy, all of Angel, and all of Doctor Who lined up and ready Uh. to start that night. (laughs) And I was so excited. But um, we, our graduation ceremony was in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And so I had to figure out, like, my mother wanted to come and I wanted my son there. Mm -hmm. And one of my best friends was going to come and be there. And my other close friends were graduating with me. And so I had to figure out logistics because my mom doesn't drive in the big city. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, trying to get it timed and figure out traffic and get it there and also tend to my son, like right. all of that was still on me, like the day of the ceremony. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't like this super relaxed, you know, like some of my friends who were in the program, like their family sent them there in limos or they went up the night before and like stayed at a hotel and partied or Mm -hmm. a couple of them had spouses who sent them on trips, you know, or like one of the girls had a boyfriend who bought her like this beautiful ring and took her out for this romantic weekend. Like big deals were made. Parties (laughs) were thrown, you know, that was not the case for me. Um, because I just didn't have that kind of structure in my life. Like there was not anyone to do that. Um, and so thinking about it, I was like, well, I was sort of annoyed. <laughs> like there was yeah. stuff to be done and I had to manage all of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm worried about my son sitting through this whole long ceremony. I'm sure he's getting tired and, you know, like trying to do all the stuff that has to be done. I'm worried about tripping over my own feet, walking across stage because I am a klutz and that is totally a thing that would have happened to me. Um, it didn't, but it, believe me, it could have. Um, and so there's like this mix of relief and annoyance and, um, a little bit of pride because it's done, but like it wasn't like this celebratory feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, and that made me kind of sad. And then I got really sad thinking about it. And it just wasn't what I expected to feel, you know, in, in kind of reviewing this this day. Um, and so I was kind of comparing that graduation experience to what she was describing at Dartmouth. 
Mm-hmm. And they're just, and I don't know if that comes from being a graduate student as an adult or being a single parent, you know, coming through that kind of graduation, but not having that kind of celebration, mm-hmm. I think is something that has been a little consistent. Yeah. So like I skipped my high school graduation because I was, you know, I had a terrible, I had serious attitude problems as a teenager. I didn't go. Um, I missed my undergraduate graduation because my child was sick. Yeah. Um, I did go to my master's, but I went very quickly to get there and back because I had a, you know, a little kid at home. Yeah. Um, I didn't really do much. You know, a friend did throw a small party for me and that was really sweet, but that was about it. Mm -hmm. And there haven't been like any other big major celebrations, you know, um, and so I think that that just sort of contributes to this maybe negative self-image a little bit. And this yeah. just is kind of like there was a little bit of sadness in that comparing sure. it to to what she had in the story of this. And I thought if I had to choose between being a student in that role and being the speaker, mm-hmm. I think I would be more comfortable speaking. And I'm not uh-huh. sure what that says about me. <laughs> no, I can totally see that. Because when you're sitting there and you're listening and you just want to get this stuff done and it's become this whole weight, you know, you haven't had the experience of that ceremony as a celebration of you and what you've done. It's just been one more thing that you had to do that you had to take care of. So yeah, when you're there, You'd rather be taking action and just doing the thing and talking and, you know, expressing something, you know, but you're, you're doing all of this stuff and it's for you, but you're also doing everything. Yeah. So I can see that being really tough. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of like a little, hmm, that mm-hmm. wasn't exactly what I thought it would be. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of that and just sort of looking back on it and reflecting on it and saying, I can still be really proud of the accomplishment, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have the emotional punch that you might expect something like that to have. Yeah. So that was all just a little story that is not going to be completely connected to the other stories we're going to get into in a minute. But I thought we might start with one that was a little. Yeah, no, that's okay. (laughs) A little different. So I'm going to hand it over to you, though, for the other ones, and then I'm going to circle back. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Um. Kelly was the one who figured out, of course, this week, that this week is about authenticity, you know, so I was thinking about that. Shonda talks a lot about athlete talk, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just grateful to be playing the game, you know, and that may be true. And a lot of times that is true, but it is never the whole truth. It is the pretty part of the truth. It is the split down the middle truth, right? Right. It's about what people want to hear, not what you actually have to say, not the whole picture. You know, and her Dartmouth speech when she was talking about the worldwide audience that would critique her, Mm -hmm. you know, when she was thinking about that, that her first speech, the one that she threw away, was filled with athlete talk. You know, athlete talk is what we go to when we're afraid. And authenticity is when we share who we really are, what we're really thinking, despite being afraid. And athlete talk is a shield and authenticity is an invitation. And I've done both of these in public. When I'm in denial, it's all athlete talk. Um, I've been athlete talking my ass off for the past six years. 
And authenticity is great when the authentic you doesn't have darkness or ugliness or shame. You know, that's when the athlete talk is all you got because that's everything, right? But when you've got those things, darkness, ugliness, shame, real, genuine authenticity is harder, but I think it's more rewarding. Sharing your shame and your darkness and your ugliness, it's powerful. Because we all have shame and darkness and ugliness. And when someone else shares hers, it makes everyone else bolder about theirs because you know that it's not just you. So true authenticity empowers everyone. And I think that in the Dartmouth speech that she actually gave, that she did that. So the first time I was publicly authentic (laughs) was a (laughs) podcast I did some years ago called Will Write for Wine. Yep. Every Friday night, my friend CJ Barry and I would get a bottle of wine and talk about writing. Uh, The audio quality wasn't always great. Sometimes I didn't even know what I was talking about. I was just blah, 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 drinking, whatever. It was fun. Um, I think if I listened to it now, I would probably cringe at some of the advice I gave because it was very early in my understanding of story. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I haven't listened to those, uh, those episodes in a really long time. Um, It was before I started studying story heavily, before I learned, you know, what I know now. But there was something really magical about that podcast, even though it was a bit rough around the edges. So CJ and I would just talk and get, you know, publicly blitzed. Uh, it was great. Was a, <laughs> oh, thank you. That was how you first found me, right? Yes, it was. So Will Ray for Wine, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a wonderful feeling of freedom to it. It was me. And I just didn't care how it looked. I just wanted to have these conversations. It was easy. The audience was small but passionate. The stage wasn't so big. The authenticity wasn't so personal because my life hadn't imploded yet. It was just me and a friend talking about writing, worrying about nothing. You know, it was fun. And that was 10 years ago this year. Wow. I can't believe it's been 10 years. It's 10 years. Yeah, it was March 2007 that we started that podcast. Wow. Yeah, I I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And I remember thinking that there was such a freedom and I have always admired people who talk with that level of freedom and I've never felt like I had ever found it. Like I'd Mm -hmm. never felt like I was able to do that. Um, so I feel like the student here, (laughs) very much (laughs) with you. but you said authenticity is an invitation and Mm -hmm. I love that. What do you think it's an invitation for? for other people to share their own authenticity. I think that when you when you go out and you say, this is the real me, mm-hmm. right? What it does, and I know this because I've been on the receiving end of that authenticity before. It's so much more fun to be on the receiving end of authenticity. <laughs> it's so much <laughs> more fun to hear somebody else tell their, their story and be open with it and share their, their shame and their darkness. And you at home, you know, in your, in your little, you know, wherever you are listening to your podcast or whatever, you can receive that. And you're like, okay, if that person has that and I have that, then it's normal. Then it's okay, you know, and I can talk about my authenticity. I can talk about my authentic experience. And I think that that's the, the, the incredible power of authenticity, that that's where it lies, and telling the whole truth, not just the athlete talk part of it. I think I agree with you completely. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that was 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And I think back to the woman that I was then, and if she had any idea what the next 10 years of her life were going to be, I don't even know. Oh, <laughs> I don't baby. Know. 
what I would have done. These have been the roughest 10 years of my life. And this last one, the roughest of those 10. Yeah. I want to be that person again, someone who could just relax and have fun. And I am deeply, deeply afraid that I will never have fun again. You know, I will never feel love, you know, or trust or feel loved again. Um, I, I'm afraid that I've been so hurt and so damaged that I'm never going to recover. And I think back to that woman 10 years ago, had no idea what she was in for. You know, and the first divorce was hard. It was so hard, but ultimately the right thing. But the second marriage was harrowing and abusive and cruel and full of athlete talk. And now I look back and I can't even imagine ever being that carefree again, ever that wild on a podcast, just talking about stuff that I love and not, not feeling this weight in my heart and in my soul. Like I can't imagine that. And ordinarily, when I look back on the things that have happened in my life, like I'm grateful, you know, even for the bad experiences, because even the bad things have taught me valuable things. And I have always managed to find my gratitude for pretty much everything. Right. And for the first time in my life, like I'm not grateful. Yeah. I am angry and I'm hurt and I'm scared and I can't find myself in that mess you know and there's a thing that he did to me last year in the last couple of weeks before he left and my therapist keeps wanting me to talk about it yeah I've mentioned it to a few people privately but I haven't said it out loud publicly yet because if I do then it's true <laughs> this man that I loved this man that I trusted throughout our entire marriage, there was one thing that he knew that I didn't want to do, you know, sexually. Yeah. And never had he crossed that line. Never had he been forceful. Never. I mean, he said, I'd like to do this thing. And I said, no. And he was like, all right. But in those last few weeks, the man that was my husband fell away. The mask that he had been wearing fell away. And I was left with this person that I didn't know. And he decided he was going to take that thing. And that was it. He knew he was leaving. He didn't need me anymore. He didn't need me to provide him, you know, a home and a podcasting platform. He didn't need any of those things from me anymore. So he was just going to take it. And he tried to rape me. You know, I had to ask him five times to stop. I said, no. I said, stop. Hey, no, stop. And it wasn't until he'd gone a little bit too far and I cried out in pain that he stopped. Oh, honey. And a few days after that, I didn't think about it. I didn't process it. Yeah. This part of me inside that had been screaming knew what had happened to me, but the rest of me was like, no, this isn't possible. My husband would never do that to me. And a few nights later, he put his hand around my neck and squeezed. Also something that we had never done before. Yeah. But he didn't have to worry about holding himself back or keeping that mask on anymore because he had a new victim. I was garbage and he didn't need me anymore. Oh, honey. I haven't shared this 
up until now because it was shameful and because I keep talking about that, that two parts, right? There's the part that knows and that is screaming and that is yelling and can't be heard. And there's the part that just rides past it, pretends it's not there, whistles past the graveyard. Right. And the part of me that was screaming told people, like in those early weeks when I didn't understand anything that had happened, I told you. Yep. I told one of the people who shields him now, who's known this all along, because that was a friend of mine at the time. I told a, a handful of people when I started seeing my therapist in, in May, I told her. And ever since then, she has said to me a number of times, do you think you want to talk about that? And I would say, nope. And we would just ride past it. But I told people, but I didn't want to talk about it. And then I wrote this story down in the script. And I wrote it down about a week and a half ago. And it was like those two parts of me suddenly slammed together and became one again. And I fell apart. (laughs) Um, I broke down. And I mean, you know, you walked me through it. I was a mess for days because I had to acknowledge that he did this to me. You know, that this is the ugliness that I don't share, that I don't talk about because this rips me up inside. Because if I tell this story, then I have to acknowledge how much my husband, the man that I loved so much, truly hated me. He spent six miserable years pretending to love me so that he could get the work so he could get my platform, so he could use what little fame I had and spin it as far away from me as possible into something for him. And when he didn't need me anymore, when he had a new victim on the line, he channeled that hatred into sexual assault and walked away. And I said nothing. And earlier this week, I went to the sheriff's office and I sat down and I told that story to a man who said, well, why did you keep sleeping with him after that? Oh, my God. <laughs> Who said to me, this guy is obviously a predator, but you married him. Oh, my God. You stayed with him. This is a person who specializes in taking stories from victims. And I said, I want this on record. Good. So that if he does this to anybody else and a law enforcement person searches his name, then that victim won't have to have somebody talk to her the way that man talked to me. Then that victim will have something there, some documentation. Oh, God. The rage in me. <laughs> like, I just... <laughs> and they yeah. wonder why... Why women don't say anything. doesn't get reported. Because he stopped, right? Right. If he like, doesn't finish, uh, yeah. then it's not rape. And right? obviously... You sure. like it rough. And what are sure. you complaining about? And, and I married him, yeah, so I deserve it, I mean, it, right? really, yeah. come on. Oh, my God. So, like, yeah. Oh, I know. Just, it's awful. It's so... I, I mean, at some point, you have to start counting layers <laughs> of victimization. Yeah. Right? And how many times can we... Just how much can we lay it on? Mm-hmm. You know? And it's disgusting. 
and and it's inexcusable. And just the fact that you had to talk to a man in the first place infuriates (laughs) me. Yeah. And his obvious lack of concern is... Or of understanding of what yeah, this does to you. It's just you know? disgusting. I, but it's inexcusable. I mean, yeah. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm so sorry I was not there. Because <laughs> nothing would make me happier than to have yeah. lit that place on fire at your side. <laughs> and I don't have words to yeah. just describe the fury that this pulls in me because this is wrong on so many levels and I don't care how long you were married and I don't care the situation around it if if anyone thinks that this is a story that you would just casually stroll (laughs) into a police station and say I think today I feel like reporting this because you know I'm bored it's fun and I just think I'll share this today they have no idea the trauma and the difficulty that it takes to share something like this. And the courage that it took for you to do that is massive. And the fact that they tried to diminish that in you is wrong. Yeah. And the shame of this is not yours. Yeah. Onondaga County Sheriff's Department. Feel free to write them a letter. Oh, um, yeah. I think we all should. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, the other thing I did this week was I gathered up with permission all of the documentation from everybody in his life that I've been hearing from. His sister, his brother, um, the woman he was with before me, stories about her daughters, um, everything. And a lot of it is incredibly dark. I'm not going to share it here because it is their stories. But there's a reason why this man has nobody from the first 38 years of his life who doesn't hate him because oh he God. victimizes everyone. And these were things I didn't know until after he'd left. And some of these people I looked up, some of them found me. Um, but I shared that with the people who are currently shielding him right now. And it appears that they don't care. Um, oh my God. It appears that they think I just wrote these things and made them up or that everybody else is lying and he's not. Um, but this is the thing, like I reported him, you know, I got it on record. I sent it to these people and I don't really care if they kick him out or if they continue to shield him or whatever. I know that I did my part. I feel responsible. I feel like I brought him to America. I gave him a platform from which to select his next victims, I know it's not my fault. It is not. But your fault. it doesn't matter because it feels like my fault. But now I feel free because Good. I spoke, because I sent them all the information that I have. And I said, this is the documentation from all the people who've known him. Ask him to produce one person who will testify to his character. He can't because there is no one who doesn't hate him. So that's what I've done. That's where I am. And I'm hoping. Dear God, like I said, this is wild. I am flailing. I am doing this in just the hopes that it'll be over, that I can walk away and let it go and start to heal. But I'm, I'm integrated now. The part of me that has been whispering and screaming without having any sound come out is speaking and the sound is coming out, and I'm sharing this story with everyone. 
and that's it. And I hope to God it gives me some peace so that the nightmares go away permanently. It's the most powerful thing you can do. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Except to speak the truth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's nothing else to do. Yeah. And I think that you have needed to do that Mm -hmm. first for yourself. Um, And I think it's hard. Hard is such an inadequate word. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is, this is damn near impossible to do. This is, this is so fucking difficult. And it, it integrating like that, you make it sound like you, you take two pieces of yourself and you bring them together. But in that, no, they it, slapped together despite me. Yes, <laughs> I did everything to keep them apart. But when they, but when they come together, they yeah. shatter in the middle. Yeah, and and there's a, this massive breaking that comes down, and it hurts. Yeah, yeah. And that that is not an easy, <laughs> is not an easy thing. And to have to to have to stand witness, and to have to be questioned, and to have to stand up to that and Mm -hmm. to have to face that within yourself and then outside of yourself yeah is damn near impossible (laughs) and you've you've done it and my god woman you've done it within a year of this (laughs) happening and and you've done it with absolute ferocity and you've done it with intention and you've done it in a way that is authentic to yourself. And I think you are amazing. And I hope it brings you every ounce of peace that it can bring you. And I would light the world on fire around you if I could. <laughs> and I hope that it, it brings you all that it can. Um, and I think that it is also one of the biggest examples of injustice that I've seen. God, you know what? I don't even care. I don't care that he gets away with it. I don't care that the sheriff detective who talked to me was such an asshole. I spoke like this part of me has been screaming for so long. Yeah. And finally she's speaking. Right. And I don't even, I don't fucking care. It's done. I said it. And you've made it real. Yeah. For yourself at the end of the day. This is denial. It, It has no hold on you. You yeah. have kicked denial's ass. You have stomped denial into dust. You have killed it. <laughs> <laughs> you have smashed it. I just it's... hope it gets better. I just hope it. I don't want to live with that pain all the time anymore. Of course not. I want that for you so much. I know. And I think it'll be okay. I think this is the right thing. I think so. And if it's not, fuck it. Hey, you know what? Last time I checked, I am fairly certain that we still have the right to freedom of speech, even if we are women in this country. Exactly. And telling the truth and is true. legal. And I, it's all yeah, true. Last time I checked, I think we're still allowed to speak. And even if and we're he not, acknowledged you know, it with me. I mean, he's acknowledged it with me over the yeah. phone. We've yeah. talked about this a little bit, not much, because I wasn't ready. Oh God. But yeah. Yeah. But he'll deny it in public because he lies. Oh, my God. So, anyway, 
Why don't we go back to you? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought a lot about this. Yeah. um, Both in thinking in terms of how to walk through this with you and in terms of how to to talk, uh, you know, about authenticity and um, and to talk about this this topic in a way that would be authentic to the spirit of this episode um, and, and to us, you know, and, and to myself. And so there's kind of this running, I, I say a running joke, you say a running, you know, theme or whatever of, <laughs> of me and badassery on the show. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that a lot. And I want to be very honest about the relationship that I was in not in an attempt to diminish the badassery, uh-huh. but because abusive relationships are messy and they're complicated. Yeah. And it's not a matter of being smart enough or badass enough to get over them or to avoid them. And I think for a long time, I blamed myself for getting wrapped up in one mm-hmm. because I was smart enough to have known better. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm supposed to be really smart. I should have known better or I'm supposed to be tough and I should have been stronger or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and I think and I also hate with a fiery passion to think of myself as a victim. Oh, yeah. I hate the word. Yes. I hate how it feels in my mouth. (laughs) Yes. Well, because it goes back to that powerlessness, right? Yeah. God, yes. Yeah. And so I would rather take responsibility for that relationship mm-hmm. and say that it was a poor choice sure. on my part. Sure. You know? Mm-hmm. And because of poor choices, I deserved what I got. Yeah. Like I was very comfortable with that story mm-hmm. for a very long time. I lived that story. That story is not true. I know. And so I think in not talking about it, that the, the idea of badassery takes on a falseness. And I don't I would, want... I would argue with that, but I understand what you're saying. I understand yeah. why you feel that way. Right? And so I don't want it to be like that. Yeah. And if we have, you know, if we have people listening who are also smart and badass, who have been tangled up in an abusive relationship, I want them to know that they're not alone. And unlike you, I have the power of peace that has come from time because I have, you know, it's been a long time and there's healing that comes from that. Yeah. Um, and I struggled to use the word rape in this story mm-hmm. because this was an ongoing relationship, right? And if I had gone to the police, which, by the way, never crossed my mind. Right. Not even once. Didn't cross my mind either. Yeah, when not that even, whole happened to me, not like, even for it just, a second. It wasn't even. No, nope, yeah. didn't cross my mind. Mm-hmm. They would have said, "And you're still dating him, right?" Yeah. <laughs> like, it, you know, it wouldn't. Yeah, it's only rape if he chases you down in a dark alley, right? You know, or yeah. jumps out in a parking lot or something. Sure. Um, and so I, and actually reading some of the stories that have been shared on Discord helped me a lot um, because. I, I've always had this feeling of being complicit yeah. in this story. Yeah. And it, it, the language of this is difficult for me mm-hmm. to call it a sexual assault 
when I can't describe it as a physical attack, you know. Um, And so in the process of sharing stories and channeling my inner Lonnie, um, (laughs) I actually told this to a couple of friends. Yeah. In preparation for the podcast, partly because I wanted to see what they would call it. Like, I wanted to define my terms. And, and I mean that quite seriously, <laughs> even though I, I know I always so say that much. as a joke. You know, I love your framework. I love <laughs> define your terms. I swear to God, Kelly, no matter what you're going through, you are always Kelly. I love that about you. <laughs> I need to define my terms. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, I asked friends who I respect a great deal, and they all called rape. Yeah. And I'm like, I... I just wish that there was either a better word or that there was a word that had a cleaner definition for this. But at the end of the day, this is an ongoing abusive relationship Mm -hmm. that I chose to stay in. So there is that. And I'm not denying that. but, But you realize that the very things that made flames come out of the side of your face that that detective said to me, you're saying to yourself. Like, well, do you see? I'm just telling the truth. I stayed no, with No, I appreciate that. But like, <laughs> but it's not true. But it I doesn't s- make it. Yeah. But I stayed with him for a long time. The, the story that I'm about to tell, I stayed with him for a year after this happened. So I'm just being I honest. I would have stayed. Okay. I get that. Totally. Yeah. Um. So I just, I wish that there was a better word for this. I but understand that. Yeah. in this situation, I had sex with him when I did not want to. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean like I had a headache. I mean, like I was terrified and I didn't want him near me. And this was how this went. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to tell the story and I'm going to preface this by saying I never stood up to him. I never confronted him. I never reported him. I stayed with him. I continued to date him. I continued to sleep in the same bed as him and slept next to him and made dinner with him and watched movies and played gin rummy and read while he played guitar and kept him company while he drove all over the state. And the whole time, every minute of every day, I was on edge and afraid and sick inside and fully and completely believed that he was exactly what I deserved. And so I just... I don't want this idea that you can be strong and badass and somehow immune to this kind of thing happening. Like, I think that a lot of people believe that and it's not true because this kind of abusive thing is complicated and it's messy and you can find yourself caught in it. Um, So anyway, I'm going to tell the story now that I have all this build up. Whatever. <laughs> so um, at the time, we were we lived in separate apartments, and mine was a two story, and we were fighting, which we did with actually we were great at it, yeah, <laughs> fantastic blow up drama fights, mm-hmm. and so we had had a huge fight, and I had broken up with him probably for yeah. the seventeenth or eighteenth time, and I was upstairs in my bedroom probably listening to music and reading or something and he um came over and broke in to the apartment with you know it was easy to do he just jimmied the lock 
and um, came into the apartment and then came up the stairs and situated himself halfway up and down the staircase. So he was like in the middle of the stairs and told me that we were not broken up. (laughs) That was just simply not an option. Mm -hmm. And that I was going to come meet him on the stairs and I was going to kiss him and I was going to tell him that I loved him and everything was going to be fine. And he was also armed. <laughs> oh, Jesus. During this um, conversation. I always forget that part. I've heard this story before. Yeah. It's horrifying enough without that. Yeah. So he is, you know, holding a pistol oh, while he is um, very calmly informing me of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I can't leave the apartment because I can't get around him to get out of the front door because the front door is past the staircase. Right. And I'm not jumping out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And it never dawns on me to call the police. Like it literally never dawned on me. Did not cross my mind for a single second to call the police. I don't know why. And I don't know what that says about me. And no, so, it didn't dawn on me yeah, to not see it for what it was. It's just mm-mm. when you're in it. Yeah, not for yeah. a second. And so we kind of continued fighting, which was basically yelling up and down the stairs. Um, and I got really, really scared because he would not back down. Yeah. He didn't move. I'm talking like full on soldier stance. How long was he there? Two hours. Oh, God. And after two hours, I gave up. I was terrified. Like, I just, yeah, of course you, were. you know. But mixed with being terrified was also this feeling of, you know, massively misinterpreted and misunderstood of being loved. Like, I right. thought, here, you know. <laughs> right. I have this thing about wanting to be fiercely chosen. Like, I want mm-hmm. to be loved without question. I want to be yeah. loved in a way that, you know. Um, that I know is real. And yeah. I think at the time, having that kind of um, fierce attention. Like, I was... yeah. I was misunderstanding possession and control yeah, for love. Um, because you don't, you know, threaten someone at gunpoint. <laughs> like, that's a basic life lesson yeah. I probably should have caught on to at the time. And so after two hours of literally being afraid to leave my bedroom, um, I went halfway down the stairs and kissed him and told him I loved him. And he... Um, pretty much pushed me down on the staircase and you know oh, God. um that was done there and but the thing that bothered me more than the sex which i mean was fine i mean we've been sleeping together for a long time but yeah was him making me tell him that i loved him at gunpoint yeah well yeah yeah but the words 
like words mean more to me. Words are important. Yeah. And words, I think, actually mean more to me than sex. And having mm-hmm. words used against me, being forced to say something that I didn't want to say was as much of a violation as the physical. Oh, act sure. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I don't know that that would be true for everyone, but it was for me. And what makes this story even more fun is that <laughs> this is not the only time that something like this happened with him. Mm-hmm. And yet I stayed with him. And so I share this story simply to say that these kinds of relationships happen and you can find yourself caught in them. And if you do, that the fear of this is so overwhelming that sometimes you cannot process it. Yeah. You know, I couldn't call this an attack for years, years and years and years. Yeah. And I, you know, like I said, I never confronted him about it. Um, And so just knowing that you have had the strength to do that gives me courage because that was something I was never able to do. Yeah. You know, and I wish that I had claimed that back for myself because I I don't have that. You know, it it took forever (laughs) to share this, you know, any of these stories at all. Yeah. And I wish I hadn't waited so long. I wish I had not kept them in the crate that long. They need air. They need light. And holding on to them that long is not good for anyone. Mm -hmm. It's not good for me. You know, so. Yeah. Oh, honey, I'm really sorry that happened to you. I'm really sorry it happened to you, too. And I think that the if you look at statistics yeah. <laughs> of sexual assault, nobody listening to this show is a total stranger to this kind of yeah. darkness, you know? No. If it hasn't happened to you, it's happened to somebody close to you. That's right. But But having to feel like the shame of it is on you is, that's where the real problem lies. Well, and that's where they hide in the shadow of our silence, right? Right. Because I stayed with him. And and I, I, you know, it's hard for me to tell the story and still not feel complicit. Like, I feel like I gave consent. Like, and I know that that's not right, but it's how it feels. But the shame of that is not on me because I didn't do this thing. I did not exert my will on someone else. I did not try to hurt someone else. I did not try to control someone else. I would never do that to another person. The shame of that is not on me. And it's taken me a very long time to get to the point that I can own that. Well, I'm so glad that you did. I mean, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you have. Me too. (laughs) but I think it would have happened a lot faster if I had told someone. So if we have, you know, anyone listening that is going through something like this or has, then I would encourage you grab the chains and pull the crate up out of the ocean, unwrap that bitch and open it. (laughs) No matter how old the story is, it doesn't matter when it happened or what, but if you haven't integrated, if that part of you that is still screaming hasn't spoken, there are things that you can do. There is an organization called RAIN, R-A-I-N-N dot org. You can do a, an anonymous chat online. Their hotline is 800-656-HOPE-4673. So it's 800-656-4673. 
if you can't tell the people in your life, if you don't feel like going on a podcast <laughs> and talking about <laughs> it there, you can call these people and they will talk to you and they will counsel you through it and maybe even just telling them. That was the first place I went. That was the first place I told this story, like for real. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was really, really helpful. So anybody out there, uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, but talk to someone. If you can't talk to someone you know, talk to one of these people. They'll know what to say and they'll know how to talk to you about it. Absolutely. And I wish I had done that. So if you're listening and you're like, well, I don't think I'll call. I really wish I had done something like that. So I would yeah. encourage you to. I think it's important. All right. So where does that leave us? <laughs> I don't know. Wine? I'm exhausted. How are you? More wine. <laughs> A little more wine. All right. So I guess that brings us to our yes for the week. What is what is our yes? <laughs> I feel like we've both taken action tonight that is uh, is pretty powerful and pretty significant. Maybe we could take the week off for a yes. Oh, God. I think that's a great idea. Okay. Our yes is to take the fucking week off. Our week is to take the fucking week off. All right. We are most active on Twitter. So follow hashtag big strong. Yes. For announcements and discussion, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones. You can also email us at BSY at chipperish.com. And that is a confidential email. So if you send us anything there that you want to discuss, you can send your story there too. That's right. And if you like Big Strong Yes, here is how you can support the show. Review us on Apple Podcast, tweet at us with the hashtag Big Strong Yes, and support Chipperish at patreon.com slash chipperish, which also gets you into the Discord chat, which is an amazing place to talk about the stories you love. Yes. Each week we end with a quote. This week was my turn to choose the quote. And it comes from the brilliant, illustrious, and wonderful Maya Angelou, who said, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Big Strong Yes is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To find out how you can support Big Strong Yes and everything Chipperish Media does, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks, y'all.